0: once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire called Christianity the infamous superstition and believed the Bible would soon be an ancient relic. His home eventually housed the Geneva Bible Society. Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the new series, Radical Renewal, with this sermon entitled, God's Prevailing Word, which covers Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, good morning, Perimeter Church. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 19. Uh, And if you've been with us over the past few years, uh, we've been sort of slowly but surely working our way through the book of Acts uh, over the course of years in these small segments. Uh, In the previous two years, we've moved through Acts 1 to Acts 18, and today we are picking up Again, here in Acts chapter 19. And so I'm going to ask, would you stand with us for the reading of God's word as Matthew Means, our worship director, reads to us from Acts 19, and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer that God would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts.
2: And it happened that with Apollos, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. On hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and when Paul had laid his hands on them the Holy Spirit came on them and they begun to speak in tongues and prophesying there were about twelve men in all and he entered the synagogue and spoke for three months speaking boldly reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks.
1: Amen. Let's pray this together. Almighty, gracious Father, Since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant us all that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You can take your seats. Father, would you come now? Would you lift me up in my weakness? Would you fill me with your spirit, Lord? Would you speak in a way, Lord, where Jesus is made beautiful and glorious to our eyes and our ears and our hearts? It's in the precious name of Jesus, your son, that we pray. Amen. In 2013, uh, I was still serving as the youth pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Augusta, Georgia. And we took our kids, uh, our high school kids in particular, on a, on a mission trip to the island of Trinidad. Uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago that we had taken them to the island of Haiti, and this was another year and another trip to a different place. I don't know why these stories are coming up right now. It's just well, apparently what I've been thinking about, so sorry. But on this particular trip, you know, it was a pretty typical mission trip on the surface. We were going to the island, we were partnering with a local church, and in the morning, we were doing this sort of evangelistic sports camp with children in this neighborhood. This neighborhood where the church already had influence, where they had members. But in the afternoon, we were basically doing the same thing, but in a very different place. A place where we were going, not by the invitation of this church, but by the invitation of the Trinidadian government. At this time, the Trinidadian government for reasons I don't fully understand, they were inviting missionaries and mission groups that were coming to the nation and saying whatever you're doing in some location, we want you to take that and come do it in this place called Lavantil. And if you'll do it, we'll give you a police escort into Laventille and a police escort out of Lavantil. And while you're on the ground, we will give you police protection. Now if you're hearing that you immediately recognize that there is something up in the place called Lavantil. And it's this. Lavantil at the time was one of the most crime-ridden places on the planet. In 2019, the city of Los Cabos, Mexico, had the dubious designation of the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, They had a murder rate of something like 111 per 100,000 people. I mean, that's astronomically high. In 2019, that same year, Lavantil, a much smaller region, so the cumulative number of murders was less, Lavantil had a murder rate of 231 per 100,000. That's why we had police protection. And every afternoon, we would pile all of our high school students into these police vehicles, and they would flip on the sirens, and we would just take off. We'd go tearing through the streets, stop signs and street lights. They weren't even suggestions. They did not exist for us. Other people didn't exist. Cars didn't exist. They just went into ditches and ran away while we went up this mountain. And by the time we got to our location, this, this auditorium on the side of this mountain in this place called Lavantiel, all of us are about to throw up because we've just been driving through the streets like mad people. And the police, they open the doors, they point at the auditorium, they go, Here you are, go inside, the kids are in there, just don't leave. And so we would go. We would walk inside and there would be all these children and our high schoolers and some of our adult leaders, they would start getting the camp set up. And my job, my job was to go on this back patio and lead a Bible study, an evangelistic Bible study for whatever adults happened to be interested. I had prepared for something different than what I encountered. Uh, I had prepared for what I thought would be a sort of conversation amongst adults. We'd read through a passage of scripture, we'd ask questions about it, and then have this gentle, patient, kind of quiet conversation where eventually I'd get to point them to the hope we have in Jesus. Not what I found. I was on a patio overlooking the side of the mountain, and no more than 10 feet in front of me was a street with cars just streaking by right in front of the street was a jail where people were being dragged in and out to my left was a group of men who were gambling and drinking on the patio. There was a mentally ill man who was circling me and whispering things in my ear. And the group of people who had volunteered to listen and to talk with me, they're sitting around me and they will be dialoguing with me, but also screaming profanities at the mentally ill man behind me. Now, I'm an easily flustered person. I'm excitable, I get anxious really easily, and there's just chaos around me. And I found myself, not speaking gently or quietly, I'm like shouting over the traffic and over the shouting and the profanity, and just trying to get a word in edgewise. It was absolute chaos. But one of the things about that trip that has always puzzled me is this. Why were we there? It's so strange, isn't it? Because apparently, the only reason I can come up with is that someone in the Trinidadian government, whether they were a believer in Christ or not, I have absolutely no idea. They had looked at this place and they said, here is a problem that no human power seems to be able to fix. The laws haven't worked. The police have tried, many of them have died, but they don't seem to be able to bring any lasting change to this place. The government programs that we've put together, they haven't seemed to meet the needs of these people and so maybe, just maybe, the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ can do what no human power can. Maybe the knowledge of Jesus can bring transformation to this city that is so seemingly unalterably broken. And you might hear that and think that sounds absolutely crazy. Because what good what good are mere words going to do in a place like that? Paul Paul in Acts 19 says if those words are the words of the gospel then they can do more good than we can possibly imagine. Paul Paul in Acts 19 walks into the city of Ephesus, the fourth largest city in all of the Roman Empire, a city of somewhere between 250 and 400,000 people. It's a city that's renowned for its wealth, for its temples, for its idols. It has a temple to the goddess Artemis that was so big, so majestic, so beautiful, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Paul walks into that city and he has absolutely nothing in his hands. All that he has is the word of God. He has no political allies. He has no army at his back. He doesn't even have police officers with machine guns circling him like I did. He doesn't have some strategic point of influence. There is the tiniest little pocket of believers in this city. And yet what do we see in Acts 19? All Paul has is the word of God, and yet that word, that was all that Paul needed. Because over the course of Acts 19, God, through the faithful ministry of one man, one man with words, God turns the city of Ephesus on its head. And here's what I hope we hear this morning. God can do the same thing here today. Because the words of the gospel, they aren't mere words. They're the life-giving words of the God who created the heavens and the earth, and they're the means through which he would give us Christ. How does God turn the city of Ephesus on its head? First, he does it through the word Proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. You know, if you've paid attention in the story of Acts, over the first 18 chapters, the church is just exploding. The people of God, they are sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming the word and people from every walk of life, every tribe and language and people and nation, they are coming to Christ and joining the family of God, Jew and Gentile alike, The gospel has gone from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and now Paul, he is sitting in a place that as a Jew he probably feels like the ends of the earth. And so you might forgive Paul if in walking into that city with its 400,000 people and its massive temple to Artemis, if Paul maybe wonders if the same missionary strategy is going to work here too. And yet notice what Paul does. He doesn't fail to contextualize the gospel so that it is understandable for the people in Ephesus, but he never once stops proclaiming the word. If anything, in Ephesus, Paul devotes himself to it in greater ways than he even has before, and it is for two reasons. He is convinced. He is convinced that it is through the Word that God saves, and it is through the Word that God grows His church. You see it in every encounter in these first 10 verses. First, Paul runs into these mysterious disciples of John in the first seven verses, and we don't know a lot about these guys. We're told they're disciples, which means they profess a faith of some sort, and it's a faith as we find out over the course of those seven verses that has been birthed by hearing the teachings of John the Baptist. Now whether or not they've actually met John the Baptist and then traveled to Ephesus from Jerusalem or they've just had disciples of John come to Ephesus and convert them there, we don't know. We only know that they have heard the teachings of John and they have embraced those teachings And if you don't remember what John the Baptist taught, John the Baptist was this prophet sent by the Lord to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He he was sent by God to call the people of Israel to repentance, to, to repent of this religion of dead works. This religion that the religious leaders at that time were passing along to the people that the way that they knew they were near to God, the way they knew they were secure was through their observance of religious rituals, of circumcision, of the Sabbath. And John, John's job was to call them to repent of that faith in themselves and instead to return to the faith of their fathers. The faith of, that runs all through the Old Testament, what my old pastor, George Robertson, used to describe simply as this, the gospel. Because what does the Old Testament teach? Not that we are saved by works, but that we are saved by grace through faith in the promise of God, even as Abraham was. Because when when is Abraham counted as righteous? It's not when he gets circumcised. Now that's in chapter 17 of Genesis. It's in Genesis 15 when it says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. John comes. And he calls God's people to repent and to return to the gospel, and he points them ahead to the Messiah who is coming, who will be the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One who's going to baptize not just with water, but in John's own words, one who will baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit. That's the message that these men have embraced. But almost immediately, you get a sense that something's missing, don't you? You know, just a few verses before this, you encounter this man named Apollos in the city of Ephesus, this man who's traveling through, who just like these disciples, knows only the baptism of John. And he's missing something, so much so that some of the believers have to correct him. But it seems as though these disciples here, they're missing something far more important than Apollos was. And you notice this in this, there are two things that are missing in their answers to Paul. Do you notice them? The first one's simply this there's no mention of Jesus. In none of their answers do they mention Jesus as the Christ. Apollos. In chapter 18, Apollos knows only the baptism of John, but it also says he's been instructed and he taught the way of Jesus accurately. He has more information than they do. But the second thing they're missing is they seem to know nothing about the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says to them in the conversation they have, verse 2. And Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That that can't mean, if they've heard the teachings of John the Baptist accurately, that can't mean that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit as a concept, as an idea. It, It can only mean they have not yet heard that the Holy Spirit is now being poured out on the people of God through Jesus. These are men who somehow, they heard the teachings of John, yet they heard nothing of the Messiah to whom he pointed. These are men who never heard John point at Jesus and say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They have no knowledge of his life, no knowledge of his ministry, no knowledge of his death for sinners, no knowledge of his resurrection from the dead. And they certainly have no knowledge of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And if they don't know those things, there is something else they don't know too. The reality that has been portrayed all across the story of Acts and that Paul explicitly addresses in the book to the Ephesians, that through the work of Christ, God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that there is no more distinction between Jew and Gentile but all people from every tribe and language and people and nation they are now a part of the one new people of God equal members with equal access to the Father heirs of the same inheritance God's holy spirit they know none of it they've missed every single piece their people Just like the ones that we rub shoulders with every day, who maybe have picked up pieces of the gospel, who maybe even profess a certain kind of faith, who may even have been baptized into that faith, but who when you begin to rub shoulders with them, you realize that the influence of the Spirit seems notably absent from their lives. People who may be trusting in something, but it certainly doesn't seem to be Jesus. People who need from us exactly what Paul gives these men here the word of the gospel of Jesus in their place of need. Paul says, You haven't heard of the Holy Spirit or of the one through whom he comes? Let me tell you, let me tell you about him. Verse four, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling to the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. He says here, here's the one to whom John was pointing. Here's the one who has made the Holy Spirit available to all who believe in him. Here is the one through whom the forgiveness of sins comes. Here is the one who is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It is the Christ. And no sooner does Paul say this than the very next verses say, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now, right there we have a super controversial text, because there is a a significant swath of the church that reads that text and says, what you see right there, that is actually supposed to be the experience of every believer. You come to Christ, and then at a later date, there's a laying on of hands, and you receive the Holy Spirit manifested in a way where you can speak in tongues and prophesy. And that should be your expectation as a believer. There's a problem with that view, though. One is this. There is no such thing as a believer in Jesus Christ who does not also have the Holy Spirit. The two are inseparable. And the second is that if this is supposed to be normative, doesn't it seem a little bit strange That this experience is notably absent from most of the major conversions in Acts. In a way that in no way seems to diminish the experience of those Christians. In Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people are converted. And there is no mention of them speaking in tongues or prophesying. In Acts chapter 8. An Ethiopian eunuch is converted. And there is no mention of him speaking in tongues or prophesying. In Acts chapter 9. There's a really significant guy who comes to Jesus. You might have heard his name. It's Paul, who is filled with the Spirit, and yet what don't you see? Speaking in tongues and prophesying. Acts chapter 16, you have Lydia and her family who are converted, and a Philippian jailer and his family who are converted, and in none of those cases do you see speaking in tongues or prophesying. You only see those happen in four places. Acts 2, in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Acts 8, in Samaria, with some Samaritans who've converted. Acts 10, with Cornelius, a Gentile man who has converted with his whole household. And right here, in Acts chapter 19. And in all of those places, there is something significant that is taking place. Because what do each of those stories have in common? They represent the progress of the gospel across thresholds that were previously thought to be denied those who were outside of the people of God. It's Acts 1-8, the words of Jesus literally being born out into space and time and history. Because what does Jesus say there? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And where is Paul right now? The ends of the earth. It is God saying this gospel, it is not just for some people in some places. It is for all people in all places. People from every tribe and language and people and nation, it is available to all. The same Spirit is available to you. And notice how it comes through the Word proclaimed. And that ministry of the Word, Paul, no sooner does he finish this encounter, he just plows right into it in an even greater way still. He goes to a synagogue and he begins to do what? Unpack the Word. It tells you that he's reasoning and persuading with people about the kingdom of God, and he does it for three months until a group of people in the synagogue, they start to get upset and they start to get hostile. And so Paul does what he often does. He just packs up his stuff, moves down the street to another place and keeps doing the same thing. He goes to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. It's a weird name. And in this hall, it's some kind of a school. And so in the morning, Tyrannus would be basically teaching his students. And in the evening, he would be teaching his students. But in the middle of the day, it would just be open. And the reason for that was that Ephesus gets hot. And nobody wants to sit in the heat and listen to people lecture. So Paul presumably goes, well, I'll take the heat of the day. And he plants himself in the heat, in the sun, in this hall. And four to five hours a day, five to six days a week for two years, he unpacks the word of God about Jesus. To anyone who will come and hear him. And by the time he's finished, in verse 10, it says that all of Asia has heard him. And notice this, because it's key, both Jews and Gentiles. Why? Why? Why is Paul devoting so much of his time to the ministry of the Word? Because Paul is convinced that it is that Word that saves. And it is that Word empowered by the Spirit that grows God's people. And what does a church at the ends of the earth need? That church needs roots. It needs roots that stretch down, 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 down. Otherwise, they will be torn up by the storms of this world. And so Paul gives them the means that God has provided the word. Because he wants them to be a church that has grown and matured and will stand fast. You know, As you look through the history of the church across the ages... This is not an emphasis that is unique to Paul. I'm a bit of a church history geek, and it's always astonishing to me as you look at the faithful churches over the years, what an emphasis is placed on the ministry of the word. Augustine was a fourth century bishop who was one of the most significant theologians in the Christian church. I mean, he influences almost every tradition. Uh, He preached something like 300 times a year And just think about this for a second, 300 times a year, that's pretty much five days a week, something like that. Distinct sermons, not the same ones repeated, but new sermons every day. Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, he preached something like 100 sermons a year, all distinct, in addition to writing books and treatises and dissertations and teaching classes at a local university, all about the word as well. Calvin, Calvin preached something close to Augustine, not quite as there, but close. About 250, 45 minute plus song sermons every single year. He would just take books of the Bible and just march through them day after day after day after day. Why? It's because they recognized what Paul does. That the word is the means through which God gives us Christ. It's the means by which he saves us, and it is the means by which he grows us. I mean, why why is it here at Perimeter Church every Sunday we gather to hear somebody preaching from this? Why, if you're in a discipleship group, and you open up your journey unit, is the very first section always devoted to the word, and inviting you to study the Word. You know, if you've taken Randy Pope's class on sharing your faith, express your faith, why do you think he makes such a big deal about getting someone that you're trying to reach with the gospel, about getting them into the Word? It's because we have come to see and to know Exactly what Paul does here, that we are not saviors, and we were never meant to be. But God, God through the ministry of his word, God saves his people, and he grows them. Think about what it is Jesus called the disciples to be. He didn't call them in Acts 1-8 to be saviors. He called them to be what? Witnesses. You know, that should lift the burden off of your shoulders. You're not the means through which God saves your loved ones and your family and your friends. God is. And God, he works through the proclamation of the word. But it's not the word proclaimed alone that changes this city. It's the word heard. You know, Luther Luther once said, if you were to ask a Christian what his task is and by what he is worthy of the name Christian, there could be no other response than hearing the word of God. That is faith. Ears are the only organs of the Christian. Now, Luther's a little hyperbolic at times, but it's true, isn't it? In Romans 10 says, you heard Fritz say it in the video a few moments ago, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. And that word, when it is heard and heard truly, it always flows out into action, into our lives in a way that begins to turn them upside down. Faith, true faith, it never leaves God's people standing still. Ever. And you see it in this text. The disciples of John in verse 5 It says, on hearing this, they were baptized with the baptism of Jesus in the name of Jesus Christ, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, that text is super controversial. If you ask 100 theologians, what does this text mean? You will get 50 or so different answers for 50 or so different reasons. Everyone's trying to figure out, is it another water baptism? Is it the same water baptism? If it is, why is it? Is this the baptism of John and Jesus? Are they the same or are they distinct? There's all sorts of questions and I don't know the answer. I spent a long time thinking I could figure it out and I finally decided I'm not smart enough and that's okay. But I can tell you this, here is what we can say with absolute certainty. They heard the word of the gospel and it elicited from them a response of faith either through another baptism or through the laying on of hands, they are physically submitting themselves by faith to the hands of Paul because they have come to believe that the Christ John promised, that is the Christ revealed in Jesus Christ, and he is the means through which the Holy Spirit comes. The word is proclaimed and the word is heard, and it flows out into their lives. You see the same thing in the people who hear the word after this. If Paul is spending four to five hours a day, five to six days a week for two years in this hall of Tyrannus, in the heat of the day when everyone's supposed to be sleeping, he's not talking to dead space, is he? There are people who are sacrificing their sleep because they are so compelled by what Paul is teaching as he unpacks the word of the gospel. And it flows out into their lives in real and tangible ways, in ways that, quite frankly, are shocking. Look at verse 18. It says, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts, these would be new converts coming right out of paganism, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's around $6 million. Poof. Set it on fire, up in smoke. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's happening there? These people have been so impacted by the goodness of Jesus in the gospel, of this one who has come to save sinners like them and who pours out his spirit on all of his people that they are taking these things, these precious things, what for many of them might have been their livelihoods, and they are setting them on fire because they would rather lose that than lose what is most precious of all, Jesus Christ himself. This would be the equivalent of burning down your business because you thought it was leading people away from Jesus. That's what's happening. And why is that taking place? Because the word of God is prevailing among them. They are not just hearing the word proclaimed, but responding to it by faith. And it is flowing out into their lives and it creates such a disruption. This one community, hearing the word, believing the word, acting on the word, it so changes this community that it begins to literally disrupt the economy of Ephesus. So much so... That in the text that Jeff is going to lead us in next week, there's a riot in the streets. Because the guys who make the idols are looking at this little community that is growing up and flourishing under the ministry of the word. And they're going, well, if they're burning their stuff and they're leaving the temples and refusing to engage with these idols, then our industry is in danger and we better stamp it out right now where the word of God is proclaimed and the word of God is heard and that is married together, there is no limit to what God might do. You know, I got a glimpse of this this past Wednesday at the memorial service for Stuart Evans. You know, I I don't know how many of y'all know all this happened, but Stuart Evans was one of our elders who passed away a couple of weeks ago in a skiing accident. And... I, we came to that service, my, my wife and my daughter, Mary Neal, and I, and just as I sat and I listened to person after person after person talk about Stuart, the theme that came up over and over again was here is a man profoundly marked by a love for Jesus. Jesus wasn't just somebody he talked about. Jesus was someone who had transformed him. When he came to Christ, it was because he heard the word of a Savior for sinners just like him, that he could not save himself, but there was one in Jesus who could. And that reality, it flooded, it permeated his life. So that he was not only sharing that word with others, but day by day, bit by bit, he was being conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, not as, not as a perfect man, as, none of us are that, But as someone who loved Jesus and whose life was marked by that love and the fruit, the fruit of those two things, it was evident all across this room. And as I sat there in my seat, back there behind the sound booth, I kept just thinking in my head, what if someone were to ask my daughters, Mary Neal, Lucy, Alice, and Maggie, If they were to ask them, what marks my life, would they be able to say the same? Would they say my dad is someone whose life has been marked by Jesus? Who doesn't just speak the words of the gospel, but who hears them in such a way his life is being shaped by them. It made me wonder what would happen if as a church, if as God's people, we more and more became people who did the same, who not only shared that word, but heard it in ways that made a tangible impact increasingly on the ways that we live. There's only one way that happens. It's not by gutting it up and trying harder. Because if that's what we're doing, we haven't heard the word of the gospel well at all. It's by running to the one proclaimed in all the scriptures, the savior of sinners, Jesus Christ himself, who came not to save the righteous, but broken people just like you and me, who says to those who have no strength, I will give you my spirit so that you can have mine. And who calls to us in our time of need and says, There is a Father in heaven who did not spare his own son, but who graciously gave him up for us all. And if he is willing to do that, there is absolutely nothing that he will withhold from you that you truly need. In this world of chaos and confusion, there is only one thing that we need for God's purposes to be fulfilled it's the Word. That same word, that same word is what was needed in Ephesus, it's what was needed in Trinidad, and it's what's needed here. Because it's through that word that the kingdom of God advances. It's through that word that God saves and grows his people. And it is that word that we are not only to proclaim, it's that word we need here, and here truly, amen. Gracious Father, we're thankful, Lord, that in Jesus we have a sufficient Savior for our sins. Lord, one who meets us in our places of deepest need, who takes the dead and who makes them alive, who takes the deaf and gives them ears to hear, who takes hearts that love the things of earth and transforms them into hearts that love you above all other things. And we beg of you, Lord, would you grow us in that way? Would you transform us for the work of your spirit into the image of the Son? In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.